Yes, now, we began yesterday afternoon in the last session to talk about what I think this is, all this analysis of where we are and where we've come from is going to mean in the immediate future and what this means in regard to preaching the gospel in this situation. And you remember I was emphasizing the sociological results of all this. And I had run through the fact that the Judeo-Christian positions had been the basis upon which our northern European culture, which would include the United States and Canada, had been built. And then I came to the fact that if, um, if there is no absolute by which to judge society, then society is absolute. And I had laid down three different possibilities of a sociological structure and order if there is no uh, if there is no absolute. And the first is hedonism. And I point out this wouldn't lead to order at all, it would lead to chaos. Then the absoluteness of 51%, and I would urge you to think back over what I've said about that and what this would mean, that if a man like Hitler could get 51% of the vote, he's right in doing anything. And then expressly, which I didn't mention yesterday, if it were possible for a man to get 51% of the world vote, he could really do anything in this situation. And then the third possibility, if there's no absolute whereby to judge society, uh, then the only other possibility is the setting up by one man or by one elite, uh, one, uh, or, or by an elite, of uh, either one man or a group of men who will hand down arbitrary absolutes to the society. Now, communism is exactly like this, of course. It isn't only fascism that's like this, but communism is like this. Communism is governed this way. There's a power struggle, an elite comes forward, and then the elite can place down any arbitrary absolute they wish to put. The biggest illustration of this was at the beginning of the communistic regime, immediately soon after the second Re communist re revolution, when the Bolsheviks took over. Uh, and the, uh, they followed Marx's concept of uh, marriage, because they were following Marx and everything else, they followed Marx in this. And in Karl Marx's concept, ma uh, marriage is a portion of capitalism. The one man owns one woman. And consequently, therefore, they completely scrapped it. And uh, if the reports come in, uh, you could, uh, when they would place reservations in a hotel, they would just place it man and woman, not ask who it was, a man or a woman. Uh, divorce could be gotten simply by dropping a, uh, a postcard in the mailbox by one of the two people and the divorce was finished. It was completely an open thing. Uh, but in a very, very few months, they saw that it was bringing such a, a total chaos to the society as society that by an arbitrary absolute, they became the most puritanical nation in Europe. And they are still. They are still. It has nothing to do with morals. And this is the important thing to see. So when people come back from communist, communist countries and say, well, you don't see the immorality in the ex-movies that we have here, you must understand that these, this had nothing to do with morals whatsoever. It was purely an elite making an arbitrary absolute for sociological reasons, for the good of, society, for the, good of the structure of society. And the, on the other hand, of course, once you have this kind of government, then it is quite obvious that the next week they could change the other way and as an arbitrary absolute give the opposite. So once you're in the realm of arbitrary absolutes, uh, merely sociologically structured, uh, you can give any kind of a thing you want and reverse it the following week or the following month or the following year. Now, out of our own struggles in the 1964 uh, Berkeley thing and following, 
there came forth two elites that offered themselves. And remember I said that it's a 1954 revolution in Berkeley, uh, explosion in Berkeley. There were two streams. There was the uh, hippie movement with its drugs, and then there was the free speech movement. And the free speech movement was political in the sense that they were talking about political things, but it was all political in that it covered the whole scope, the whole spectrum of the, of the political uh, life, all the way from the left to the right. There were strong, there were rightists in it, there were leftists in it, there were middle people in it, merely saying that there should be freedom on Sproul's plaza to discuss political questions. So it was all political. But immediately after this, there arose uh, out of this stream, if you were making it, the hippie stream, uh, the hippie stream and the, uh, the all political stream, the free speech movement, there arose out of it an offshoot became much stronger than the original itself, and that was the new left. And this was the era of Marcuse. He is still important, but not nearly as important as he was a few years ago. But Marcuse laid down the foundation for the new left, and it spread like wildfire throughout the whole world. So it would not only be if you had been in Berkeley, but if you had been in Columbia, if you had been in Wisconsin, if you had been at the Sorbonne, if you had been at the Free University of Berlin, if you were at the University of Japan, in universities in Japan, it was Marcuse who suddenly became the man who was quoted. And Marcuse's viewpoint just swept over the whole student world. The other... Uh, uh, and the, incidentally, it, it graphically showed its character, because by the time of Columbia, Columbia was the watershed on this, by the time of Columbia, it was obvious that it was exactly opposite from the free speech movement, that it was a small group who put themselves forward as an elite, who told the majority they must shut up. So, interestingly enough, it was a complete reversal, a complete reversal of the free speech movement, that here was an elite, a left, a left, new left elite, putting themselves forward, telling that the majority must keep quiet while the, while the minority gave a, gave a dictate. In France, this became a sort of thing after the Sorbonne explosion. It became very obvious that this was this way, that it was a small group insisting that they had a right to speak and everybody else must keep quiet. So what you had was the birth of the new left elite. Now, the other elite is more subtle. And it is very much still with us, more than the new left is in its full, its full force. And that is what I would call the establishment elite. And the man who I think puts this forth best is John Galbraith, who of course is American, but does a lot of his work in Sod, uh, writes in Sod, rather close to where we live. That John Galbraith, in his, for example, his New Industrial State, and his other book, put forth, and his, uh, his lectures in Britain prior to the publication of that book, um, put forth a, a certain concept, and that is, the interesting thing is, he begins with the same concept that the students began with, and that is, we, our society is poor. Our society is poor. And then he said, we need a new society, and who's going to bring in this new society? And then he put forth this, his concept of the elite. And the elite fell into the category of the intellectuals, and especially the people in the academic world, and especially the scientists, plus the force of the state. So it's the intellectuals, and especially those in the academic world, and especially those in the scientific world, plus the force, the force of the state. Now, my personal opinion is this is really the thing which the evangelicals have to, have to really take seriously, this concept of the establishment belief. Uh, but, and, and these men will put forth arbitrary absolutes, and they will govern society. But, of course, we as Christians must understand we must understand that these two, these men are also 
either that man is a machine or in this new kind of mysticism that I talked about, in which there are no real categories, and which categories do not exist. So you must understand that the men who will be making the arbit generating the arbitrary absolutes, they too are modern men. And just because a man has on a white coat does not make him a different man than when he has removed his white coat. And this is a very important thing to grind into your thinking and the thinking of your people. That just because these people are in the intellectual world and just because they're scientists expressly uh, does not mean, does not mean uh, that they are, uh, that they are uh, any different. And this has come really a long way in our society. For example, when Julian Huxley wrote his memories, he made plain that in that as far as he was concerned, when the scientists speak, the United Nations must listen and vote the way the scientists indicate. But now the, and Dr. Lewis Hall of the University of Geneva, uh, made a great point of this in his reviews that he gave, uh, I saw it in the, uh, in the International Herald Tribune. And he raised real questions here, and they should be raised. Because just because a man is good in genetics, what does that prove that he can tell you how to vote in the United Nations? But what you have is a transference of prestige. A transference of prestige. Uh, these men stand at the acme of the point of prestige, uh, and standing at the acme of the point of, uh, prestige, they tell you how to do everything. In other words, in the best terminology for it, to make it clear to the people you're talking to, is that they hand down a series of arbitrary absolutes, which in reality is no different from the way Russia is governed. Not at all, because both are put, are governed by, by, uh, arbitrary, by arbitrary absolutes. Uh, and you must understand that you have to face again the problem of Skinner. And that is, uh, if this is done, if this is done, then you have the problem of who is going to, you're going to have the problem of who is going to control the controllers. Now, when we, we find that there is another factor in our sociological mix all over the, the European world, northern European world especially, but all over the European world, uh, and certainly uh, very strenuously in America. And in 1970, the term became very, very popular in the United States, uh, the a silent majority. The silent majority was, was rising up in its vote and in its inclination in contrast to the new left. And these were pitted against each other. And there is no question whatsoever that the silent majority can today elect anybody they want to elect in all the northern European nations. They just can't. Uh, they have a complete, they have a majority, they are a majority, and they, they can elect whom they will. But for as evangelicals, if we're going to be wise, or even as patriots of our, of our own country, if we're going to be wise, we have to understand that the silent majority is divided into two halves. There's the majority of the silent majority, and there's the minority of the silent majority. And these must not be confused. The minority of the silent majority are Christians who have absolutes, or at least a memory of the base of values that had a meaning. At least a memory. And these are the minority of the silent majority. The majority of the silent majority, though, are modern men. And I think the kids put their fingers exactly on the dilemma here uh, when, they, when they cried out against the value system of the majority of the silent majority. I think they were right in 1964 in their criticism, though it was not as analyzed then as it is now, as it has become. And that is that the majority of the silent majority only have two values, and that is personal peace, I don't mean international peace, but personal peace and affluence. You can feel it, you can feel it very much in the affluent society, 
and certainly our in, our evangelical churches are often very much infiltrated with the with the expense of the value the value intrinsic value of affluency just for fluency. Those of you who heard me preach Sunday morning on Ash Heap Lies, who really see something maybe of this in perspective as I see it. Personal peace and affluence, not international peace, but personal peace. Uh, it, it is ghetto, stay away from my door in certain instances. In other instances, it's just let me alone and don't bother me. Let me go my own way. Let me do my own thing. Now, coming to the kids sociologically, where what has happened is that you had, as I say, in 1964, the birth of the concept of drugs as an ideological answer. And Tim Leary and these people really believed that if you could put LSD in the drinking water of the great cities and turn everybody on, that the problems would have been solved. And you have to understand that they really believed it. They really believed it. Seriously. They thought if you could only turn everybody on, if you could only turn everybody on, uh, everything would be beautiful. And it was their ideological solution. And all the way up to Woodstock, they had the concept that it was an, the ideological solution. Woodstock stands at the apex of the concept that drug taking was the ideological solution to the problem of modern man and his poverty, his poorness. So Woodstock stands at the, at the, at the acme. And, uh, and you can say these people were terribly wrong at Woodstock in their lifestyle, and they were. But at the other hand, it seems to me that we do have to acknowledge that they were longing for something human. They were longing for something that is community. They had a real sense of desiring community. And Woodstock stood at the peak of that. But immediately after this, the thing shifted. And the thing shifted with two different things taking place. And the first thing that took place was at Altima, A-L-T-O-M-A, in California. And Altima, at Altima in California, the whole, we came to a whole new elbow in the youth culture, a complete change in the youth culture, which has been dynamic. And at Altima, the, the Rolling Stones had a festival, and they hired the Hells Angels for so many barrels of beer to police the ground. You see? So now here you had, you had Woodstock, and Altima was to be a repetition of Woodstock. And I have said in parenthesis that we must, as Christians, say no to what happened in Woodstock, and yet understand there was a longing for humanness, which is not wrong, this is right, because we are made in the image of God. It's good when men desire a humanness. But at Altima, at Altima, there was a little trouble started, some trouble started, and the Hell's Angels killed a number of people just wantonly. They just killed them. In other words, they entered the element of violence. And the drug culture in the United States was dead, as far as it was an ideological thing. It's amazing. In one day, it was wiped out. The Rolling Stone magazine in its next issue came out and said, we have lost our age of innocence. And from then on, then on, people began to raise questions. Now, they should have raised it before. The Beatles, incidentally, had already raised the questions before when they went to Haight-Asbury, and they looked at Haight-Asbury, and they saw it was so ugly that they raised questions. Now, the next thing that occurred was in Europe, and this really finished it. And it was the Isle of Wight, the Isle of Wight Festival. And there were 450,000 youngsters there from all over the world. We had about 20 library people working through that crowd. And I know one of the men in Europe who's very central in the, in the rock scene. And uh, he knows the man who ran the rock festival at the Isle of Wight. And it was so ugly. 
It was so utterly ugly. Kids kicking down the fences, even set fire to the tent that belonged to the man who was running the thing. It was so utterly ugly that at the end of the festival, the man who was running it simply grabbed the microphone and stood there shouting swear words into it. And that was the end of the festival. And it completely finished it. It had been finished at Altima and then at the Isle of Wight. And from then on, the drug taking no longer was looked upon as an ideological solution. Now, does this mean less are taking drugs? No, unhappily, more are taking drugs all the time. In California, we've set the tone for many of these things. The beginning of drug taking is now down into uh, 10, 9, 10, 11 years of age. That's when people begin to take drugs now. The ones who are going to take it. Which I would say in parenthesis is a double tragedy because it means before they're old enough to make such climactic decisions, they have spoiled their heads. <coughs> so it's a tragedy. And interestingly enough, in a country like Switzerland, the drug taking pretty much jumped over the university age and started with the younger ones. But in the, so I'm not saying that there's less drug taking. I think there's more drug taking all the time up to this point, and there's no sign of it slackening off, as far as I see. But having said this, but having said it, it is different kind of drug taking in that it no longer was the ideological solution. So you remember we go back and I put in where drug taking came from, where you have where you have the line of dichotomy, you have the area of non reason, and you have the existential experience, the existentialist, the existential experience, the final experience of Charles Jasper. And then I said the next thing you came to was all the Huxley. And Aldous Huxley put forth the idea of the drug experience as the solution. And suddenly now, this is crossed out, you see. So that people, so that people take drugs, but they don't think it's the ideological solution. The Beatles are the barometer here. They, they, they continue to dra take drugs, but they didn't believe it was the ideological solution. And they went on into the next stage, which as you remember what I had on the board before, was the Eastern religious experience. But nevertheless, nevertheless, the, so, uh, the, the ideological, the important thing is that the ideological element that gave birth to the drug taking, as I see it, in 1964, came to a conclusion. So the Beatles are, the Beatles are a barometer. What you do is that you go through the drug experience, the Eastern religious experience, and then you, the next thing they made after this crumbled away was the yellow submarine, which was just a romantic story. And then it is very, very striking that Eric Siegel, who wrote the script for the movie of the uh, Yellow Submarine, wrote Love Story. I think it's an absolute sequence. It's an absolute sequence. Bergman, Bergman has come to the place in his making of his films where he just makes entertainment. A lot of the, a lot of the parents say, isn't it good? Isn't it good? Isn't it a great thing that now there's quietness? That now the kids are listening to country music rather than hard rock, acid rock. But I don't think it is better. I weep for it, because I think what it is, is, is one great, tremendous emphasis on apathy. So we're, in preaching the gospel to the young people, I think in many ways it's harder to do, to do it today than it was a certain, a few years ago, just because everywhere you go, there is a total, a total emphasis on apathy. And as I say, this thing with Bergman now coming after his philosophic films and just shrugging his shoulders now and saying, just making entertainment, I think it's a part of this whole structure. In this present Newsweek, of Newsweek of February 26, 1973, I just ripped it out. There was an article in there, My Turn, by a Bob Green. By a Bob Green, and he calls it the end of outrage. The end of outrage. 
And he analyzes and he says nothing could outrage our country. Nothing could outrage our country. And he goes through all the kicks that kids have gone through. He's gone, he goes through all the pornographic movies that people have gone through. Uh, he goes through all these things and he says, we are the place where nothing could outrage our people and especially our young. And I think he's exactly right in this. I think we have come to the age where people can be outraged that they don't care, that they have come down, uh, they have come down to the place where the youngsters are filled with apathy. We find it even in the questions that come to Labrie. The questions have differed. The questions are not as intense. The questions are not as intense as they once were. The questions do not touch upon the whole scope of life. We, we, we have to stir the young people who come to La Brie to get the cultural questions that used to come so naturally and Christianity's answers to the cultural questions. We have to raise the questions. And I would just say, I would just say the quietness of our campus is not a good thing. I think it is a regression still further. I feel it's a regression in the area of apathy, which, which, which is a, a black, black thing. Now, what it means is, therefore, that we have what the youngsters would have called the old bourgeois, which were the parents, who had only two values, the majority, the silent majority, who had only two values, personal peace and affluence. And incidentally, politicians have to take this very much into account. I remember not many years ago, I forget if it was the last time I was here or the time before, uh, when, uh, when I was here, I got a telephone call and a, a politician in, uh, in the state of Missouri asked if he could have an interview with me. And I met him, and he was a nice man, and he said, something's wrong. I don't understand what's wrong. And I don't understand what I have to do to get elected. And we talked, I talked to him about the, the double value of the silent majority, uh, the majority of the silent majority as personal peace and affluence. And his, light, his face just lit up, and he said, you've analyzed for me what I felt but haven't been able to analyze. In other words, to get elected, he couldn't just appeal to the minority of the silent majority. He had to appeal to the majority of the silent majority. And that is really pathetic. It's really pathetic. Because these people really have only personal peace and affluence. And if, if we came to a time, if we came to a time when a depression came again, when the bottom dropped out, uh, nobody knows what this majority, the silent majority would do. I think they would just roar through, roar down through uh, our culture. What you have is, I think, the youngsters, we must, first of all, say that uh, whether we like the terminology, we may feel it's a kind of a little harsh terminology, uh, but they were right in talking about the old bourgeois, the affluence and the personal peace. The affluence, you must always have one more automobile. You must add a boat, and then you must add two boats, and you must have a house, and you must have a country house, and you must have all these things, and these things are taken as intrinsically values. And then those of you who heard me preach Sunday on Ash Heap Lives, the simple factor is uh, that it is not so that material wealth always intrinsically is good. It can bring the opposite, very, very readily the opposite. I used a couple of illustrations in the, I used a couple of illustrations in my sermon on Sunday morning for those of you who weren't there. Uh, of never mind the afterlife for a moment, I started that they aren't valued, they aren't, oh, fluency isn't always good in this life, and then I went on, of course, with the Christian believes in an extension into the next life, and seen in this, in this life, it's stupid to put our, and I mean stupid as well as wicked, to put our, uh, all our emphasis on affluency in this life when we say we are going to have a, a, an unbroken horizontal continuity into the next life. But even in the present life, we must acknowledge that material possessions are not always good. 
And I used the illustration that when I first went to Europe, most of the women were still washing their clothes at the village pumps. Not most, but, well, yes, most, in the smaller places. And I, I looked at them with great pity, these poor women who had to stand at the village pump and wash their clothes along with their neighbors. And then gradually as the years went on, though it's, not, it's no longer, I don't see it much in Switzerland anymore, it's almost finished. Uh, but nevertheless, I gradually changed my thinking. Because the question is, if you give the woman the washing machine, which is a part of our affluence, and you give the wash, woman the washing machine, and therefore you give her, give her leisure time, how does she use her leisure time? If she uses her leisure time to destroy herself and her family, she would have been done, she would have been better washing at the village pump, along with her neighbors. So you see, our values are really, really, we must shake them up. Not only as a Christian, not only as a Christian value for the afterlife, but for the present life. The other illustration I used in my ash heap lives is when I first went to Europe, I saw all the women working with the men in the hay fields and doing this heavy, heavy work in the hay fields. And I felt very sorry for them. And I must say, I must say that my feelings have reversed at this place, too. For the simple reason, uh, how much better it is for a woman to work shoulder to shoulder with her man in the total aspect of life than the way much of our culture does, and that is separate the husband and wife in the most important part of his life. We must not, we must not take these things, we must not be infiltrated to think that automatically affluence is always good. It's not always good. It depends how it is used. So therefore, when the young people looked at the, their parents, looked at their parents in, in 1964, in that period, and they screamed against their bourgeois parents, you must have some compassion for the young people that they really saw something which deserved criticism. And I think the evangelical church has not been careful enough to be critical. I think we have many, many others in our evangelical churches. We have become infiltrated with the with the the value of affluency for affluency's sake, as though this is necessarily always the value to be pursued. And we must say, we must say with some some care that many, many of our evangelicals are have really, without knowing what's been happening to them, have taken on have taken on the value of value of affluency in a poor way. So the kids came along and the, what the youngsters did was to say these parents had only two values of the old bourgeois the personal peace and affluence. But now let's notice, and this is what's important, is that the kids have come around and gone through the free speech movement and found it to be uh, uh, without value. The, and incidentally, oh, I didn't mention that. I must go back in my lecture. The free speech movement, the free speech movement came to a, a grinding close. I'm sorry, I left that one of the most important parts of my lecture. It should come in immediately under what happened at the Isle of White. But at the free speech movement, I mean the uh, new left, sorry, sorry, new left. The new left came to a grinding change with the weathermen. Because with the senseless bombings of the weathermen, and especially the bombing at the University of Wisconsin in 1970, the youngsters were turned aside from, from the new left revolution. And they were turned aside because of the senseless violence. So you have Altima and senseless violence in the drug world and you have, you have the University of Wisconsin and senseless violence in the political world. And this was the point, this was the point in which, uh, at the point at which the apathy came. Both of their, both of their ideals crumbled. And the apathy was born. And then in my notes, I would bring in the, the factor of the apathy. 
and Bergman and his Enlightenment, and then the new, the new, the old bourgeois. This is where it was fit in my notes. I missed that it was going through. Now, therefore, what you have sociologically, as I see it, is the old bourgeois with two values, and I think properly, the majority, the silent majority, having only two values, personal peace and affluence. But the kids have gone through their drug ide uh, ideology, and they've gone through their new left ideology, and they have come around unhappily, as I see it, in a very tight circle, and just about eight years later, they have come to the same place as their parents, but one inch lower. Because they have come to the place where they only have two values. And that is personal peace and affluence. And most of the young people I meet, that's the only two values they possess. Now, their idea of affluency is different. So you have two life forms that stand opposed to each other. The parent and the child, or the one generation and the other. Or the silent majority, the silent majority, and the youth culture. They stand opposed to each other in lifestyle. In lifestyle, the young people continue to take drugs. In lifestyle, they continue to have a promiscuous sex life. In lifestyle, they tend to drift more and more toward an asexuality. There's a very different lifestyle. But what we must see is that sociologically, the two bourgeois support each other. They're supportive one of the other. The majority, the silent majority, I think, would give away their peace. Their, their, uh, would give away, sorry, would give away their freedom step by step, to keep their affluence and their personal peace. And I think the kids have come to the same place, that they would give away their freedom in order to keep their kind of affluency and their kind of personal peace. And their kind of fluency means having a pad where they can follow their lifestyle. And their kind of affluency means being able to buy their drugs and to do the other things they want to do. So as far as they're concerned, what they want to do, as I see it now, is to be left alone the personal peace, and what they want to do is to be able to have enough money to pursue their own lifestyle, and they don't care how they get it. So if the parents will give it to them, that's fine. If the parents won't give it to them, if the state gives it to them, that is fine. But if neither the parents or the state will give it to them, they're perfectly willing to work from nine to five with their mind on something else in order to earn enough money to have their own kind of affluence. And we have teachers, we have everything you can imagine in this structure today. The job is only to provide, the job is only a nine-to-five situation in order to provide uh, provide uh, them, them what they need for their own kind of affluency and their own kind of personal peace. So what this means are, it means that the two, the two things, the old bourgeois and the new bourgeois, as I see it, are substantiating each other, where the young people fill with apathy, which I think is, adds to the point of danger. So what you have then is personal peace and the fluency of the values uh, on both sides. And these this leads very, very readily to people giving up their freedoms step by step in order to in order to uh, keep these values. And on the other side, you have, I do believe, the rise of the establishment elite. I think that's the danger. I don't think the new left is the danger at the moment. It may have a resurgence. Nobody knows. But at the moment, it's not the danger. There's far more danger on the side of the establishment elite. And you'll notice that I am not saying the right and the left. And I do this deliberately. I don't think the danger is the right as opposed to the left. I think, really, John Galbraith is the prophet of the point of danger. It's interesting. Many thinkers, uh, as I read their writings, they feel, they feel, you can tell they're very uncomfortable with, with what they see here. 
So what you have, what you have is a John Galbraith coming forward, putting forth the concept of an establishment elite. And here you have, and remember what it's composed of. The intellectual, and especially the academic world, and especially the scientific world, plus the force and the power and the money of the state. Now I think at this particular point, we must recognize, and here I wish I had time for more lectures, and I would take you into a review, but you can, you can pursue it for yourself, of the new forms of manipulation. And I, I speak of these toward the end, the last two chapters of the, um, uh, of the church at the end of the 20th century. And then extend these in my, something of my, a bit in my little, uh, little pamphlet on the new super spirituality. And what we must recognize is that today society has forms of manipulation that no, no, no elite ever had in the past. Hitler didn't have them. Mussolini did not have them. Caesar never dreamt of them. All kinds of, for, of very, very subtle forms of manipulation. Skinner's tremendous thing in the film we heard the other day where he said he isn't going to make anybody do the things they don't want to do. He's just going to make the people want to do what he wants them to do. And this is his whole emphasis. And, uh, and I feel that with the subtle forms of manipulation which we have today, that you can have the rise of the new elite and it can get a long way along in its establishment power without people really recognizing how much liberties are being given up. And I think that's the, that's the danger point of politically and sociologically at the moment. Now, as an evangelical, as an evangelical Christian, we must understand that we have a problem here. I would mention, incidentally, that, for example, in I stress at the end of the 20th century, that Arthur Kessler, at one time, suggested that a certain drug, uh, that some drug be put in the drinking water so that people would be kept more passive. And you'd say, this is far out, this is Buck Rogers. But when Arthur Kessler says it, it's no longer Buck Rogers. And I've often said facetiously to some of the students who come to La Brie that maybe the biggest contribution that some of our young scientists who come to La Brie could make would to invent something to put on the, uh, on the thicket of the drinking water so nothing would come through but drinking water. And I'm only being half facetious. Only half facetious. The president of the Psychological Society of America has suggested that drugs be administered to the, gover to the men in high places of government to keep them from being aggressive. With, of course, and, and this is a man who's the president of the Psychological Society of America. Not a small voice, not some crackpot talking to himself through a big beard in the cellar somewhere. And you have the, uh, you have this on every side. You have the whole problem of sublimio, sublimial, uh, manipulation. And as I've, uh, as I've said in a couple of my books, it is all the, there are all the technical breakthroughs have been made so that on any movie screen, and on any television screen, there can be a sublineal manipulation. And that is that something can be flashed on the screen so fast that you never know you've seen it, and yet it influences you. And the, one of the big illustrations was the fact that they tried this in the movie theater one time. They flashed on the screen, drink Coca-Cola, drink Coca-Cola, so fast that nobody knew they saw it. But after the, after the movie was over, they say that the Coca-Cola machines were blocked around. Completely <laughs> now, what you can do, of course, you can laugh about drink Coca-Cola, but what about if you, if you, if you, if you flash vote so-and-so, vote so-and-so, vote so-and-so, vote so-and-so. Now, in, by law, it's again, illegal that this is a use. So you, I don't think you're getting it now. But having said this, 
Do you think for a moment the communist China or Russia or, or communist Russia wouldn't use it? Don't be silly. And on top of that, on top of that, do you think that if we really got in a struggle in this country and everything was blowing up around us and going down the drain, do you think that someone in the establishment elite who is such a man that only sees men as machines or only sees people in the area of somatic mysticism, do you think that they wouldn't suddenly begin using it? And again, I would say, please don't, please don't be stupid. These men have no values why they would not use it. Now, in a situation like this, one can ask himself, is the evangelical church ready for what I think is a push that is coming? And I must say, I doubt it. I'm not saying it's not. Other people can make their own judgments. But my personal opinion is we're far too soft and far too shut up to our own little circle, uh, for our own little circle uh, to, to meet it. I don't know if you know how many so- sociologists in this country uh, evaluate uh, and classify the evangelical camp. They classify us as a sub-language group. Think that one over. And the trouble is, you see, all too often I think they're absolutely right. The thing we got is a special language. The thing we've got is a special language in which we talk to ourselves all too often. And the question of whether we talk to anybody else, and then a greater question of whether we're talking to God. And you have, it seems to me that evangelicalism is simply not ready for the kind of push that I hope doesn't come, but I'm afraid might come. Especially if you had an economic, an economic collapse and people being ready to give up their personal peace without question for the sake of uh, for uh, or their, their personal freedoms, I beg your pardon, their freedoms uh, for the sake of personal peace or affluency. Now, there's another thing with which I would close, and that is that uh, it seems to me there's another danger in the evangelical camp that we must learn out of this, and one which some others who are going to have some places of leadership must very prayerfully and thoughtfully think through and not just give snap answers. And that is, I think, you see, the danger is from the establishment aside, as I, if my analyzation, if my guess, that's all I'll say, if my guess is right. It's from the establishment aside. But for a long, long time, it seems to me that the evangelicals have made the tra- tragic mistake of all too often equating the middle class norms with a biblical absolute. And we have done this until it has become a mentality. We have confused the two things. We have confused the middle class norms. I'm not saying everybody by any means, but I'm saying there's been this strong tendency. We have confused the middle class norms of our own culture, which in parenthesis could be very different middle class norms, for example, to let's say the Dutch culture. But we have confused the middle class norms of our surrounding culture and made these normative, and we have made them, we have made them absolute along with the biblical absolute. In other words, we have already, it seems to me, confused ourselves with this mass of people. And we have just assumed it. We have just assumed uh, that these, uh, these norms are to be accepted by us without question. And we, uh, we confuse them with the biblical absolute. Now, the thing that bothers me, you see, is, the thing that bothers me very, very thoroughly, is the fact that, uh, that I am afraid that the evangelical church having confused its standards, its biblical standards with the middle class norms for so many years, that if the threat to, to real freedom comes, comes from the establishment aside, that the, 
evangelical will not wake up to what has happened until everything is lost. I think it's a very real danger. I think it's a very real danger. And uh, I'm afraid that until our own lifestyle, and I'm not saying, I'm not saying uh, that even our doctrine, but as long as our lifestyle are, is not challenged by the establishment elite, I doubt seriously if most of the established, uh, most of the evangelical people are ready to really sense the danger which confronts us. Now this is what I think comes next. And it's something that I would suggest that some of you who do think about these things and pray about them, that you'd really think about them and think what it means as you go out and be pastors and you're pastors of these churches. What does it mean? If this is right, and I would just say, of course my guesses can be wrong. I'm no prophet. But it, my guesses have been pretty thoroughly right in the last ten years, so much so that I must say often I'm frightened that my guesses have turned out so accurately, step after step. And this is my guess, and I'm not saying it's right, but it's my guess for what the next battle that the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ has to fight in our northern European culture and in our country included. That with the breakdown of Christianity being no longer the basis of the consensus that we have come to this place, that there's no absolute by which to judge society and therefore society is absolute. The danger is coming, as I see it, from the establishment side. And we're already so interwoven with this that I'm afraid that if our lifestyle is not threatened, we'll not wake up until all the freedoms, a lot of the freedoms, have already really, in principle at least, uh, been lost. So here's where we are. Now, this the last lecture. I want to lecture on what I think is needed in order to speak into uh, into the such a century as that in which we live. And I'd like to see Tom Kennedy for just a minute. Afterwards.